الجزيرة بودكاست What exactly happened that night, and how did it lead to the deaths of over a hundred people? I'm Halima Hiedin, and this is the Take. Al Jazeera correspondent Jessica Washington has been reporting on the stampede. Here's what happened that night. So there was a football match. Quite an ordinary thing in Malang, in East Java, between two local teams, the teams Arema FC and Persebaya, so the teams of Surabaya and Malang, on Saturday night. So it was only the fans of the home team that were allowed to attend the match. The fans of the visiting team were actually not allowed to attend the match. This is common practice in Indonesia due to the intensity of football fan culture, Jessica says. So even before anything actually happened, you could see the sort of mechanisms behind the scenes that there was sort of thinking there might be some conflict between the fans. And what happened next? The home team has lost and it is only their fans in the stadium. It was considered an unexpected outcome and it was in the aftermath of the result has become clear and that's when we start to see the sort of chaos unfolding. Some fans, in responding to the loss of their team, went down onto the field. According to police numbers, there were around 3,000 fans who went onto the field. This is in an audience of around 40,000 spectators. So in what police say was an attempt to disperse the crowds, tear gas was fired by police. And what we know from speaking with spectators is that police not only fired tear gas at the field itself, they also fired it at the stands where people were just sitting down, possibly packing up, getting ready to go home. Suddenly you're in this chaotic situation where it's nighttime, Fans also told us that the lights were dim. They couldn't really see what was happening already because it's dark. Now there's this cloud of tear gas covering everything. Suddenly there's a mad rush to get to the exits. But many of the 14 exits in the stadium were closed and the gates were locked. So you have people rushing, crowding and essentially trampling over each other because they can't see where they're going, because they're choking on tear gas, because their eyes have been affected by tear gas as well. They're in pain and they're just trying to get out. And that is where this tragedy comes from. The current death toll stands at 131 and many more are injured. You know, it's not about what the fans were doing before. It's not about fan hooliganism or anything like that. Ultimately, this tragedy comes from the decision to fire tear gas and what happened after that. And what happened after is that people were met with locked gates as they tried to escape the tear gas. What I saw when we were at the stadium were these big 
metal gates and you could see that people have pushed their bodies against the gates trying to get out and you can see how the metal has been warped as they've tried to push out. The metal is completely bent out of shape. There was also sort of a ventilation window right next to that exit that has also been smashed and being there at the stadium the first thing I noticed when I walked in was this tiny shoe that looked like belonged to it was pink and and small looked like maybe a three four-year-old girl that had been squashed flat and it was brown from being trampled on and purses scattered throughout the stadium but in the rush to get out, they've, they've lost their things. And the stairs leading to each of the exit gates, even though the gate was closed, um, you can still see through sort of a gap and you could see that there are shoes on each step. So, you know, people are running and losing their shoes and gives you a sense that this was a really chaotic, scary environment to be in. And it, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. You've interviewed people who were there. What were they telling you? What stood out to you? The story that stands out to me is we met this father named Andy and he went to the game with his wife, his two daughters who were teenagers and his two-year-old son. He explained to us that I thought this would just be a, a fun outing with my family, something nice for us to do, and I, I never anticipated that something would happen. In the end, he, what happened was the tear gas was fired. My wife told me to keep him safe. She told me to take him first. His wife, he said, the last thing she said to him was, we'll take care of the baby, so the two-year-old, and I'll look after the girls. Yeah. The most important thing was to save him. I threw him down from the stands. I asked people to catch him. Then I jumped down to get him and I ran to find a medic. Ultimately, by the time he is able to, he's, he's looking for his daughters and his wife, you know, because they've been split up in the chaos and he has no idea where they are, he can't reach them. After the situation calmed down, I went to look for my wife and children. I found my daughters around midnight. I found my wife at 1.30 at night. They were already dead. So his story is the one that stands out, but everyone is grieving in this community in their in their own way there were of course you know hundreds of people who were injured and so we were at the hospitals there were around eight hospitals that were treating people who were injured and just there was this hospital waiting room with parents with the most anxious faces you could imagine uh, just waiting for updates on their children waiting to know if they're okay or not that must have been incredibly hard jessica i mean how did that affect you reporting on this because I'm, I'm listening to these stories. I've got chill. I mean, this feels going to haunt me, and, and I'm thousands of miles away. How did that make you feel as you were, as as you were listening to this? Mm. I mean, yeah, it's such a good question. It's um, probably. I hope I'll never see something like this again in my lifetime. And it it was horrific, and just seeing these young people are uh, just like shaking and 
you know, imagining what it's like to be a teenager going through that. I mean, it's extremely tragic and I'm still kind of processing what we saw. Jessica said that days after the event, many survivors returned to the stadium, hoping to tell their story to reporters. I think part of wanting to come back is that they themselves wanted to see uh, the scene. But secondly, I think they wanted to make sure that this didn't become a misrepresented story of the fans they were up to no good because, you know, in part there is that challenge of Indonesian football fans having somewhat of a bad reputation. So they are sort of the easy targets. And I think they wanted to come and make sure that, hey, I, I want to tell you what I saw. So that was them wanting to share what they witnessed because only the fans know what really happened that night. I did see some, you know, online commentary of people saying things like, oh, but, you know, these football fans, if they hadn't caused trouble in the first place, none of this would have happened. But that's not true. Maybe there were some people engaging in some antisocial behavior, that doesn't mean that you gas 40,000 people. When actually FIFA regulation stipulates that using tear gas is prohibited full stop. So there are many questions. Why was tear gas brought in the first place? And then why was it fired at the stands? Why was it fired at all? We'll talk more about those questions and find some answers after the break. Hi, I'm Chris Barrett, and I'm part of Al Jazeera's new TikTok team. If you're looking for quick explanations about the biggest news stories, follow us at Al Jazeera on TikTok. You can find exclusive content and learn more about the world with Al Jazeera on TikTok. What happened at the Kanjuruhan Stadium in Malang is not an isolated incident. Police have used tear gas at football games before in Indonesia. That is something that many residents know well. I live just five minutes walk from the largest stadium in Indonesia. This is Andreas Harsono. He covers Indonesia for Human Rights Watch. This is the largest one in Indonesia, meaning that every weekend I'm familiar with football matches and I often smell tear gas in the neighborhood. Every time I pass around the stadium, Andreas has covered the police for many years. He says that this level of brutality is common, but often aimed at certain groups more than others. If you are rich, you know, the police will be reluctant to use excessive force against you. If you are highly educated, the police might think twice against you. Or if you are a man, it's different than how the police treat a woman or to treat a lesbian or a gay man, moreover, a transgender. Last but not the least, if you have darker skin, you are more likely to face excessive use of force than if you have lighter skin. And of course, if you are well-dressed, it is different. If you wear football t-shirt or football jersey or football bandanas, it is different. And he says that this prejudice is part of the reason that the level of brutality happened at Kanjarahan Stadium. The victims, they are common people. You know. uh, of course, there are elite who watch football, but they are in the VIP balconies. Those that die inside the stadium, 
are people who are commoners, common people. It should be a a cheerful game, you know, to oh goal shouting that that kind of thing, you know, to to burst our emotion you know, at least once a week or once a month. Those are the people who mostly die in the stampede. The Indonesian police's ability to do this, says Andreas, is because of their might, which matches that of the country's military. This happened after the dictatorship under President Suharto in the late 1900s. They have almost equal sizes of forces. In terms of budget per personnel, it is roughly equal. The police also has their own boats, ship, planes, chopper, armed personnel carriers. Uh, but the police, this is very important, the police has this pre-mob unit all over Indonesia. Every province has a paramilitary unit. And this unit is a large reason that the police are able to use excessive force. The issue with the pre-mob unit is it is a unit of the police, but it functions more like a military unit. It is not a policing unit. It is a defence unit. Brimob is considered a special unit, and it's often dispatched for riot control. Thus, their approach is less civilian, more militaristic. Those are the units that operate inside the stadium that night. And to both Andreas and Jessica, this power of the police is something that's been building up, leading to the tragedy at Kunjarahan Stadium. This incident was sort of the um, horrific formula combination of the tear gas being fired, the gates being locked, and, you know, the, the timing of the event as well. So you had sort of all factors culminating in a particularly horrific situation. Well, Jessica, it sounds like the police have a history of, of doing this. What has the government response been That's sort of the problem, I guess, that in the past where there have been these instances of whether it be police misconduct or negligence or violence against civilians, that the response has often been seen as inadequate, that it's left to police to sort of investigate themselves. And human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International have consistently raised that as as being a problem. With regard to this specific incident, we have sort of several streams of investigations. There is a, an investigation that is a multidisciplinary group of journalists, ministers, that is led by the chief security minister. That investigation is, of course, crucial, and they will ultimately pass their findings down directly to the president. This is what Indonesian President Joko Widodo had to say. I have ordered a full audit of all stadia and buildings to fix exits, gates, and positions of seats, gates, and everything else so that audience safety and supporter safety is prioritized. That is all I can say. For Andreas from Human Rights Watch, the investigation involves more than just the police. We are talking about coordination between the police and also the military, which was helping the police at the time. If you look at the videos, you can see many army men were also inside the stadium, kicking, hitting football fans. And then this football association. We are talking about three institutions now. 
FIFA has recently announced that they will not place sanctions on Indonesia. However, it is still awaiting the results of the investigation to see if Indonesia can hold games safely. This tragedy has come at a time where Indonesia is actually looking to increase its standing on the global football scene. So next year, Indonesia is hosting the under-20s FIFA tournament. It's actually considered quite a big deal for Indonesia. It's their first FIFA tournament. And so when this tragedy happened, the immediate question was, is that going to be taken away? Immediately there are questions, is Indonesia capable of having a sporting event like this safely? The latest that we've heard is that the Indonesian president has directly been speaking with FIFA, an attempt to reassure them that this can go ahead safely. When I spoke on the phone with the president of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, he conveyed that FIFA is ready to help fix our football management. I believe we need a full evaluation of everything. Management of stadia, management of matches, management of audiences, management of time, management of safety. Everything needs to be entirely evaluated. Basically, the solution is that FIFA is going to set up an office here in Indonesia where they can sort of help with some of their safety challenges um, and perhaps be a more sort of on-the-ground presence. So do you think then that, this, that there will be some kind of change that will happen when it comes to police behaviour? Because that's quite the carrot to dangle in front of the Indonesia's police force. Could this lead to change? You know, that's really the question that everyone is asking. That's what the survivors are asking. It's what the loved ones of those who were killed in this tragedy are asking, will there be anything meaningful as an outcome from this? And, you know, it's it's left to be seen. We're, we're already seeing some sort of uh, outcomes of the investigation. Um, they've already said that, yes, the use of tear gas is the main problem. And, you know, that report already looks like it is going into quite horrific detail about survivors having shortness of breath and coughing. So having that sort of testimony from survivors in the report, you would hope that that is powerful and compelling and compels Indonesia to do something about this problem. But so far we're seeing in the investigation um, that six suspects have been named and among them are three policemen. Um, it's it's difficult to say whether this will lead to long-term change for policing in Indonesia itself. But Andreas says that real change in Indonesia may take more time. I have seen decades of violence in Indonesia. I have witnessed killings. I have seen dead bodies enough in the nearly four decades of my work as a human rights researcher, as a journalist. I do not expect reform to take place soon in Indonesia. But what we can do is hoping for smaller steps to be taken. I am lucky if some small step being taken before my time has passed. But I, as an Indonesian, I have hope that the future of Indonesia, at least for my children's generation, will be much better. And that's The Take. 
This episode was produced by Chloe K. Lee with Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ashish Malhotra, Amy Walters, Ruby Zaman, and me, Hala Mahiuddin. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Aya El-Malek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. Ney Alvarez is our head of audio. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>